0: How are you guys doing? You enjoying the music? Well, I know I have. Uh, We're going to dive right in. Actually, I need to speed it up a little bit this time, so buckle up. But before I get there, uh, you've heard about the floods in Kentucky. We're actually connected to a couple of churches in Kentucky, and uh, they have big-time needs. As a matter of fact, how many of you remember Pastor Tressler? And then if you'll remember, one of the places Pastor Tressler served at, he had a lot of stories about it, was Clay Hole, Kentucky, well, two churches that we know of there's a church, and then it has now a campus in Clayhole. That campus is the same church that Pastor Tresser was at, but we're going to show you rather than talk about it as much right here. Hey guys, we're at uh,
1: Clayhole Church. And Phil and I just walked in. And as you can look, where I'm standing, it's almost unfathomable how water could come up this high and do this much destruction. I don't know, guys. But, uh, these, these people need your help. Had a great experience with a helicopter that landed and uh, was actually hunting Clayhoe Church to drop off some water and food. And we got to do that. That was a blessing. Well, the flip side of that that's the high the low is they just found another body and there's a lot of uh, rescue workers here and so it brings it how real it is I have the high emotions of blessing people and then you hit the bottom you tank out when you see the devastation of the flood it's just you know we try to do pictures and videos and talk but you really can't grasp it unless you see it It's devastation like I've never seen where is it homes gone. Where is it at? This, have,
0: have been it. this is a home right here. Yep. They cleared it off the road.
1: Again, folks, this part of the country needs help. Whatever you can do, it will bless me.
0: Many people died. This turned out to be the greatest flood Brederick County had ever seen lost a lot of stuff, we had a lot of damage, but we're all safe. And we have
1: people like you coming and helping. And I just pray that God blesses you tenfold.
0: I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for being willing to help us and to help our community to bring stuff you guys spent your own money or using your own time so i pray that you're safe the whole time you're here
1: uh, i pray that you work hard and you enjoy the end of the day but i hope you go home knowing that you made a difference your and you're helping a ministry that loves to help continue to go All I am is friend, your friend to the end.
0: These are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need some help. And so every couple of months or so, we do a dollar club. So today, dollar club, uh, we want to send down to Clay Hole, Kentucky. Uh, there's, uh, the pastor down there is Mike Tabor. Some of you might have remember his son, uh, Phil Tabor. He actually worked in our, uh, our tech area several years ago. But uh, you guys know how to do that. If you want to, we, we've learned through Dollar Club, if we all give a little, we can do big things. And so you can do that by, with your church center app or ohiograce.com give, or you can text to give at 84321, and uh, you can make that happen right now, and, and we'll see what we can do. We'll announce next week uh, how we were able to help them, but uh, just want to also be praying for them. It's not just the churches that, that we're Underwater, uh, first floors, and stuff like that. But then a lot of the people that go to the church it lost everything. So it's just a tough situation. Uh, so please keep them in your prayers as well. We're actually praying for a young man also at uh, Asia's Hope at our DS3 campus, WIRA, and uh, who's, if you've followed on my Facebook, he's had some issues, uh, got in a motorcycle accident, and has been through thir- three surgeries and now has kidneys. So you can also be praying for that. We're going to jump uh, into. Uh, back into Colossians, we've got this series image of the invisible, where we're working through the book of Colossians, and we're finding out about the supremacy of Christ in every area of our life. And we've come to now chapter three. We've mentioned how before the first half of a lot of Paul's books is the more theological; the second half is the more practical. And in this section, uh, starting in chapter three, verse eighteen. Paul is going to talk to us, teach us, instruct us about relationships. And relationships are huge in our life. Maybe the most important thing we have on earth is our relationships because we can use them to point people to Jesus where our relationships in heaven, we won't even be able to do that because everybody will ever already know Jesus. And so this is what God has called us to do. And so he breaks down that for us. And he starts with the family. And the family, of course, is a foundation of society, And we see a lot of the problems, or I would say most of the problems that we see in our country today is a result of the breakdown of the family. Families fractured. Families don't happen. Uh, One thing that that I've noticed, Pam and I uh, have have noticed like this, there's a term that's now become mainstream, baby mama. Baby daddy, you know, that, that's been around a long time, but now it's mainstream. Now we, we, that, that's become so commonplace, and that's just talking about people you have children with, multiple people, but you've never been married to. And ironically, or as you would guess, where these terms are used the most are where there's the most violence in our country. And that's not by accident. That's the point. When fathers are absent from the home, That's where we experience the most violence, uh, the biggest social ills, if you will. So that kind of makes sense. Shouldn't be that way. God's called us uh, to do families in the right way. He's the creator of the family, tells us how it works. And so now Paul, God actually, through Paul, is gonna give us instructions on our three most important relationships. And the first is marriage. And so he's gonna pick that up in again, Colossians 3:18, and I know when we talk about marriage, you, uh, people throw around things. A lot of people say, "Well, fifty—you know—we have 50 percent of divorce rate. We've been hearing that for a couple of decades." And and then a lot of people will go through that and say, "There's no difference between people who are Christian and people who are non-Christian." Actually, there is. The studies that have bothered. To go into that a little more deeply and start dividing people by their religion, uh, Catholicism, even Judaism, um, and and then one of those categories would the way they've done most of the research is conservative, Bible-believing Protestant. And uh, when you break it down that way, uh, conservative Protestants who are engaged in church are more than a third less likely not to be in not to be divorced, but that's a whole other thing. We get it. Most uh, It's the, actually the least likely group in our country to not divorce are Bible-believing, take their faith seriously by going to church, Protestants. And of course, many skip marriage. You know, they just, uh, well, maybe because we're afraid of a divorce, we skip marriage, or we'll just try things out to know whether we should get married, even though study after study has actually shown that when you cohabitate, when you live together, whether you get married or you don't get married, your chances of breaking up that relationship are greater than if you had never have done that and just got married. And so it's just kind of the opposite of what people think. And and again, so we're going to focus on this and we're going to start with marriage. And God tells us how to make marriage work. And he starts, like he often does, with wives. And we see that in Colossians chapter 3 Verse 18. This is the verse that a lot of ladies have crocheted and framed and put up around their house. Uh, here, here's how it goes. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this subject, this S word here, it is, you know, the whole deal. Some people react to this and say, Hey, that's why I never want to be a believer. Hey, that's why I left the church. You know, and why do we react that way in our culture? We react that way today because we realize that men and women are equal in value, in worth, in giftedness. You know, we get it. We are equal. We're equal in dignity. And and that's, by the way, exactly right. That's, by the way, exactly what the Bible teaches. Ironically, the the people in history who championed the fact that women were equal to men more than any other group in history were Bible-believing Christians. Christianity's not against this. Christianity is the point. And so our culture hates it. But the truth is that even though we are equal in value, in dignity, in worth, that God says in relationships... Some people have to voluntarily submit, and some people need to lead, voluntarily, that we should lead. And so here's what's going on in marriage. God, who created us, who invented marriage, is saying, to make marriage work, women should yield to her husband's leadership. And so that's a hard pill for some to swallow. But uh, what that does is that protects the relationship. We all get that we're independent persons, and so we view things differently. So in most marriages, when you have big decisions to make, some of those big decisions, you'll have a difference of opinion. A lot of times you'll resolve that after talking about it for a week or two. But sometimes you don't resolve it. And so you have two people who honestly believe this is what we should do in this decision. And another person saying, this is what we should do in this decision. And then, so how do you fix that? Because we're all equal. Well, God's come up with a way to fix that. And he says, wives, voluntarily in this situation, submit to your husband's leadership. By the way, if this is coming up every day, you're not doing it right. But once in a while, when these big decisions hit, wives, submit to your husband's this, the husbands are the tiebreaker. And what's the point? Why would God do this? Well, God knows this better than we do. But what we can see is why God God might do it is because the relationship is always more important than the decision that you're making. You can argue about anything. The relationship is more important. So here's a way for the tie to be broken. Now, when a woman says, hey, honey, okay, we've talked about this. There's no new information. You make the decision I'll follow you. That doesn't mean the guy just automatically makes the, the, chooses the choice he wants. Then he's left with the burden of saying, okay, which way do we go here? Which is best for my wife because I'm called to love her self-sacrificially. Which is best for our family, but a decision needs to be made. So that's the wives. And then he moves on to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. And, and this love your wives This word for love is one of five Greek words for love that were around in the first century. It was one of the least used words for love. We know it as the most common Greek word for love to us because we look at the Bible all the time. It's agape, it's self-sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives, saying self-sacrificial do, action love. Love your wives and do not be a bit embittered against them. Embittered means that It's caused from non-forgiveness where we're holding grudges against somebody and we're bitter against our spouse. We are forbidden as husbands to do that. We love self-sacrificially. We forgive. We are not bitter. And if we're holding anything against our wife today, that's wrong. God's saying that's wrong. And so Paul expands on this actually in other passages, but we as husbands are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And we get it in our culture today, a lot of times guys just quit in marriage. Sometimes they just walk away, but other times they quit without walking away where they basically quit loving, quit serving, quit sacrificing, quit being engaged, quit leading. And that's a problem. And by the way, as Paul deals with this, I'll also throw this in because it's key. Paul's telling us in other places like 2 Corinthians 6 that believers should only marry other believers. And that makes all this work a little bit better. Only marry non-believers. And by the way, if you're single, singlehood is honored in Scripture. It's great to be single. But if you're planning on getting married, You should only marry a believer. As a matter of fact, here at our church, we will not marry you if you're a believer marrying a non-believer because God says don't do that. For Pam and I, what that meant for us is when our kids were young, we told our kids, you know, hey, when you're sold, you might be able to double date. And then when you're a little older than that, you might be able to go on a single date, like 16 or whatever that would be. But... We're telling you, you cannot date a non-Christian. That's not even in the Bible that you can't date a non That's our rule. You cannot even date a non-Christian. And by the way, when we say Christian, we don't mean some guy who says he's a Christian or some girl. We're talking about somebody who says they're a Christian and their life shows that they're a Christian. That's our standard. And, and don't put this on your kids like three weeks after they started dating somebody. You know, don't do that then We told them this years before they knew they could even date anybody. Oh, by the way, 13-year-old, when you date three years from now, possibly, if everything's going well, that will only be a Christian that you'll be going out with. Set the tone. Be the leader. Make that happen. Help them with that. And then after the marital relationship, Paul then instructs the parent-child relationship. And it goes like this. Children, and by by the way, children, this word, basically, if somebody's financially dependent on you, living in your home, this kind of falls into this category. Children, be obedient to your parents. Obedient means do what your parents say, but don't just do it. Do it with a right heart attitude before them and before God children be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Now here's the good news for you teenagers. You don't always have to be obedient to your parents. You only have to be obedient to your parents in all things. So anything that doesn't, doesn't fit into the all things, then you're good to go. You can skate, but all things you got to be obedient. So this is what God is telling us. If You're living with your parents. You should be obedient to them in all things unless it conflicts directly with what God says in his word. And by the way, this obedience, and here's the kicker, the weird thing about this. Parents, it's our job to make sure that our kids are obedient. We've got to put that into them. Even though God's telling them to do that, We have to ensure that it's done. That's part of our job. And so next thing, we swing to parents. Fathers, this is a word for fathers. It's primarily because I think fathers should take the lead on this, but it can also be used kind of a little more generically to use parents. But fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Exasperate is when you're sort of needlessly frustrating your children by unreasonable rules. And the way you don't do that, the way you don't exasperate is as your children get older and as they have a greater capacity to understand, you should be giving them the moral reason why you should or should not do something so that they understand. When they're young, it's just you don't do it because mom said so or dad said so. But as they get older and can understand and hopefully drawing closer to Christ, we give them the moral reason so it makes sense to them and it helps them not be frustrated. Even if they don't agree, at least they know where you're coming from and why you're coming from. So that helps. And by the way, dads lead in discipline. Dads challenge you lead in discipline. Don't let your wife lead in discipline and then you be the good guy. You're the fun dad. And the, and the wife has to do all the hard work. You lead in discipline. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. And we've got to do that. I mean, and why do that? Because we want what's best for them. Some families, they revolve around the child. We call it child centered parenting, where your child grows up thinking they're the center of the universe. This does not work well for them when they leave your home. Parent them, lead them, instruct them, help them. That's our job. Insist on obedience. And, and why are we doing all that? For their welfare. Plus, we want them to become believers. Here, here's a, a scripture that's dear to my heart. John in 3 John 1-4 writes, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. We have no greater joy than knowing that our literal children are following Christ. If you're a believer, there's no greater joy after being a believer than that. And so Pam and I prayed and prayed and prayed that our three kids would become believers. They all made that choice to become believers. Then we prayed and prayed and prayed that whoever they married would be believers. And they all three married believers and we're so thankful for that. And now we have grandkids and we're praying, praying, praying that all of them come to Christ. We don't want to take anything for granted. That's what we want. That's the best thing. There's no greater joy. But to make that happen, we've got to, what helps with that is that we model our relationship with Christ, especially in front of our kids, especially us dads. You know, a lot of times when kids have spiritual questions, they go to the the mom first, because usually the mom's more verbal, maybe more approachable, maybe more time with, but hey, dads use teaching moments keep pointing your kids to christ okay so now he's done marriage he's done parent-child relationship and now he's going to get into our maybe kind of our, our third most important relationship after not counting our relationship with god which is our work relationship now to do that he's going to actually talk about slavery so There's an intriguing backstory here, but first I need to cover some ground. Are you with me? Okay, so we just got to remember some stuff. I've mentioned some of this before. Slavery in the first century is not exactly the same kind of slavery that we think of. And by the way, slavery was in every part of the world up until the time of Christ and beyond. Slavery was everywhere. Slavery was practiced in... You know, and everybody enslaved everybody. I mean, uh, Europeans enslaved Europeans. That, that's where the word slave comes from is Europeans enslaving, or Muslims, enslaving Slavic people. So that's that's where the name comes from. Europeans enslaved Europeans. Africans slave, enslaved Africans. Asians enslaved Asians. Native Americans enslaved Native Americans. I mean, slavery was everywhere. And then... Slavery was a lot of times the result of war. That's when mass uh, uh, slaves came into society. And typically it was like, okay, we beat you. You're an enemy combatant. We can either kill you or take you as a slave. So some people are like, well, thanks for taking me as a slave because that's better than dying. But slavery, that's how slavery was and it was all over the world. Now, we think of slavery in our country as in like 18th century um slavery like it was in our southern states that type of slavery which is based on kidnapping is the worst kind of slavery as a matter of fact that slavery is forbidden in the bible in the old testament to kidnap somebody for slavery whether they're holding them or selling them the penalty is death um in the new testament slave traders are listed as the worst kind of sinners so that's condemned in scripture the worst kind of of slavery and typically what we think of is like the african slave trade but there's things we probably should know as a culture to to kind of work through this the african slave trade most slaves went to the east predominantly to muslim countries the majority of the african slave trade but then there came to be the transatlantic african slave trade where Slaves were taken across the Atlantic to the Americas. 80% of the slaves that came across the Atlantic slave trade, 80% went to South America. And slaves went to the Caribbean. But some slaves came to, a lot of slaves came to America, what would be America, the colonial, the southern half of the United States, where they were used for agricultural work. And so worst kind of slavery, although this same kind of slavery was happening all over the world. And by the way, America's one of the first, you know, one of the first three countries to abolish slavery. Uh, Britain, America, there, there's like an island in the Caribbean where the slaves took over, so they abolished it. But the whole point is, hey, slavery after Civil War where hundreds of thousands of Americans died, slavery then was outlawed in the United States before it was outlawed in Africa, for example. But why was it outlawed? Primarily because of Bible-believing Christians is why slavery ended. So that's kind kind of what's going on in slavery. But get back to this. Back to our backstory. First century slavery... Not as bad as that. A lot of times people sold themselves into slavery in the first century because they owed a debt they couldn't pay or because they just couldn't feed themselves or their families. So they would find a wealthy family, maybe somebody they had a connection with or something, and they would voluntarily enter into a slave relationship because then they knew food, clothing, shelter, all those needs would be met. And so they can voluntarily become slaves. That type of slavery and from warfare was the vast majority of slaves in the Roman world. There was no race based slavery in the first century. Now, the backstory on this is we've been studying all through Colossians, but there's another story through the Bible that deals with Colossians, and it's all about the slave relationship. Are you ready now that I've prepped you up? Are you ready for the backstory? Okay, half of you are ready. The other half, hang on, try to follow. So here's what's happening. Paul is in Rome, right? He's been arrested for sharing the gospel. Because some of the soldiers liked him, and he's a Roman citizen because he saved their lives in a shipwreck, yada, yada. He's a Roman citizen. They actually put him in house arrest. Under house arrest, he's chained 24 hours a day to a Praetorian guard, but he can talk to people. People can come and go. People can visit him. While Paul's in Rome about the time that he writes this letter called Colossians, which is a book of the Bible that we've been studying, he meets a runaway slave. The runaway slave's name is Onesimus. Onesimus happens to be from Colossae, the very town that Paul is writing this letter to. So Onesimus, fled Colossae, went to Rome, probably because it's a big city and there were people that were hunting down slaves and, they, and it was probably just a place to get lost in the crowd. Somehow he bumps into Paul. The only way to be there would be at Paul's house. He's somehow introduced to Paul. Paul shares the gospel with this slave called Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a believer now Onesimus becomes a good friend of Paul's and helps Paul while Paul is under house arrest. Paul writes this letter Colossians and at the same time he pens another letter to a man named Philemon. Philemon is a man who also lives in Colossae and is a member of the Colossian church. And so this letter Philemon is also a book of the Bible Paul's shortest book, his shortest letter written. So he writes this letter to a man named Philemon that even though Paul hadn't been to Colossae, Paul apparently met Philemon, probably in Ephesus like he did the leader of the church and shared the gospel with him. So now Paul writes this letter to the Colossians but also another book of the Bible to Philemon, an individual who is in the Colossian church and is the owner of Onesimus. I would say, so are you getting the tension here? He's writing a letter to the church called Colossians, but at the very same time, he writes a short personal letter that's in our Bible to Philemon. And then, not only that, he hands these two letters to Onesimus, the runaway slave, for him to deliver to Colossae, which was dangerous. And so another guy comes along with him, but then... Pretty soon, here, Onesimus, the runaway slave, shows up in Colossae and says, Here, Paul gave, I've become a believer. Paul gave me this letter to the church. Here it is. It's the same letter we have. Oh, and by the way, Philemon, Paul sent this to you. And he knows Philemon because he was Philemon's. So you want to read a little bit about this? So check it out. Here it is in Philemon 1, beginning of verse 8. Very short book. He says, Let me do it off of this. Here's what he says. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you, this is Paul's authority, to order you to do what's proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I've begotten, in my imprisonment. He's saying, Onesimus has become a believer while I'm here chained to this praetorian guard who formerly, now talking about Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you but now is useful. This is a play on words because Onesimus, the slave's name, means useful. Hey, I'm sending you Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, because he's run away, he's gone, but now is useful, is how he's continuing, to both you and me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart. He's saying, sending my very heart. Hey, I love this guy, I want him here with me. He's working with me, he's helping me accomplish a lot for the gospel. But it's like I'm ripping my heart out to send him back to you. Verse 13. Whom I wished to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps, and now he starts talking about the sovereignty of God, for, for perhaps he was this reason separated from you for a while. He ran away. That you'd have him back forever beyond this life. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh, and in the Lord, he's saying. Verse 17, if then, it's a very confrontational letter in a very nice way. If then you regard me, Paul's saying Philemon, if you regard me as a partner, Paul led him to Christ, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you, some people speculate that maybe uh, Onesimus might have stole something to finance his flight or, or whatever to get out of there. We don't know. But, and I don't know that Paul even cares. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account, Paul says. And then he makes it legal. He says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll repay it. And then he throws this out. He plays this card. Pastors don't normally play this card. He says, not to mention that you, Philemon, that you owe me even your own self as well. Kind of an interesting thing to say because he's saying, hey, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even be a Christian. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have life in Christ. He he plays all the cards. Verse, Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Huge. This is the slave handing this personal letter to his master. And this letter is not commanding it, but it's everything but, it's like I would command it, but I don't want to rob you of being able to do it of your own free will. He's saying, release Onesimus. And he's saying, by the way, even if you don't release Onesimus, you can never treat him the same because he is a brother in Christ. Slavery is completely out of touch, incompatible with Christianity is what Paul's saying. And Philemon is hearing this loud and clear. Onesimus is now a brother. Now, so that's the backstory. Did you know that already? You know, that's the backstory going on. Now, Paul's gonna go on and talk about our work relationships. And he's gonna use the example of slaves and masters to drive home his point. And I just say that to say, if he's saying this about slaves and masters, how much more does this apply to you and me who work for people? that aren't our masters. Check it out, he says, to slaves in verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When he's saying sincerity of heart, he's saying, do it sincerely. Work hard sincerely. He continues whatever you do, do your work heartily. Work hard, he's saying, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality, which is key. Whatever our circumstance today, whatever our job, whatever our work situation, we are called by God to work hard. Well, what if we don't want to work hard for these people? Then work hard like you're doing it for God. Work hard, not just for people, for the testimony of God. Work hard for God, they're saying. Well, I don't like my job. Work hard. I don't like my boss. Get another job. By the way, in my entire lifetime, there has never been a time where it was more easy to get another job than right now. You can't drive two blocks down State Street without seeing somebody who's needing somebody to work. Work. Find a place where you can work hard not to please men. You're working hard because God says to do it. Work hard, for him, is what scripture's saying. We have no excuse not to work hard. God's calling us to that. There's another place where Paul's writing his protege, uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy five eighty. he says, but if anyone, he's talking about, hey, here's how you run the church. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he's denied the faith. And he's worse than an unbeliever. That's how important work is. Of course, we live in a culture where where it seems like our government pays people not to work, which which is not right. Now, If they're able-bodied. I mean, if they're not able-bodied and you're paying, we all get that and we all support that. But when we're paying people who could work to not work because they choose not to work, this is not good. And it's not good for them. Because we are robbing them of the dignity of work. Paul tells us in another place hey, work hard, earn money, stop stealing, earn your own money so that you can not only provide for your own, but you can also share with other people who are in need. Hello, people in Kentucky. That's what he's telling us. And of course, he doesn't stop with slaves. The next verse actually crosses into another chapter, uh, Colossians 4.1. It says, "'Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven.'" When he says justice and fairness, he's talking about grant to them equality and fairness, not equity Equity is something that sounds kind of like equality, but actually means inequality. He's saying equality and fairness. Masters, that's how you're to act because, hey, you and them, you also have a master in heaven. We treat other people, especially believers, why do we treat them good? Because God's told us God loves everyone. God died for them. We should... Treat them right. And believers, hey, you're child of the king. Of course I want to treat you right. My brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. That's what he's telling us. And why is he saying it? He's reminding us at the end, hey, why? Because we all have a master in heaven. A master who not only loves us, but died for us to take care of our every need. A master that we can rely on, that we can rest in, that we can give our whole hearts to and only benefit from doing that. And that's what he calls us to. But part of that when we become a follower of Christ is that we actually do what he says. And, and we mess up sometimes and, and that's called sin. And Christ has already forgiven us, He already paid for all of our sins, even the ones we haven't done yet. But hey, if we're a believer, we want to follow him out of gratitude and joy in every area of our life, especially those areas of relationships because they're so important. Marriage, parent-child, work, so we can impact people for him. Let's stand, pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us direction in life. Because a lot of this stuff is not intuitive to us. It's sort of shocking, some of it. Lord, help us to get it right. And we thank you for giving us direction. And Lord, help us to be faithful to you. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, we pray most of all for them that they would come to know you, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would become followers. I thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.